and we can't escape there is a new version of AI. Very scary when the CEO of OpenAI just kind of mentioned it very casually on a, on stage one of these conferences. Well, there are natural evolutions on how we think about the alignment problem, but hopefully AI can get so sophisticated that it will help us address the alignment problem. What do you think the alignment problem is? I have no idea. You have no idea. Scientists have revived a zombie virus that spent 48,500 years frozen in permafrost. Dozens of UK companies have trialed a four-day working week last year, and on average, their revenue went up. Oh, their revenue went up. Hmm. The views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views of our employers. They are very much our own opinions and thoughts. Have your reading habits changed since starting the podcast? A little bit. I'm, I'm paying more attention to science articles in the news when I'm doing my daily news check. I only ever looked at news headlines when it came across every single platform. Like I couldn't escape it. I'm not mm -hmm. a very routine visitor of news websites, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but now I've become more accustomed to it because right. of the podcast. So that is a good habit to be in. It is a good habit to be in. Yeah, like we've discussed before, I frequently get asked about news that's emerged and sometimes I have no idea what's going on. It's good to have a bit more breadth in what I'm reading, I think. Yes, and of course, our podcast is not just about science, our areas of expertise. Welcome to the Crossover Connections podcast. This is episode five. My name is Jack Wang. I'm a microbiologist and a teaching professor at an Australian university. And my name's Amanda, and I'm working as a manager of clinical research. Terrific, and both of us have our so-called day jobs and mm -hmm. our respective expertise based mm -hmm. in the biological sciences. That's correct. But this podcast is our attempt to chronicle our learning development as broad readers of scientific news headlines. Attempting to be. <laughs> to make us seem much more worldly than perhaps we really are because mm -hmm. our fields are almost defined by their niche. That's correct, yeah. We're defined yeah. by how little we know about everything else <laughs> and how deeply we know about one mm -hmm. very specific thing that mm -hmm. at a cocktail party would take an hour to explain the full background to before we dive into the trivia that we are ultimately pursuing. We've talked about a lot of issues and a lot of articles up to this point. We're only at episode five, but we've branched out quite a bit already. And this is a recurring segment now for the podcast called The Connect, where we revisit previous issues and news articles we've talked about and look to see if there's any updates and any new developments in this space. And the first article is one from our own Australian ABC News. Research into moth-eating bats could drive natural pest control on Australian vineyards. We have consistently slandered bats over the last several episodes. <laughs> I won't put it on you. I will, I will claim responsibility. <laughs> I've called them filthy, filthy bats. Oh, dirty, dirty bats. I dirty, dirty bats. Well, dirty, well, bats. Well, now I'm calling them filthy, <laughs> filthy bats. We've tried to go on a reclamation project last week where we talked about bats both being very, very immune competent. That's right. They have an amazing immune system and they frustratingly exercise like you wouldn't believe. They are highly fit creatures. But then it doesn't take much for us to relapse into the criticism of bats. And That's this right. is yet another piece in our bat reclamation project. Mm -hmm. This researcher, this Australian researcher is doing work and him and his colleagues mm -hmm. on how we could leverage the benefits. I'm trying to be really positive here. Leverage the benefits <laughs> that we might derive from bats. University of New England researcher is looking at moth-eating bats as a pesticide alternative for wineries. This work is claiming to be able to use bats instead of pesticides. That's correct. Yep. And yep. pesticides and pest control is a huge issue in all parts and all sectors, but I guess in vineyards and wineries, it's especially... It's something I hadn't really thought about, but it, it makes sense, right? And if you were a 
that looking for redemption. You got to sign up. Wine is the way to do it. To be signing up for this study <laughs> right now. And so they're saying it could save $50 million in pesticides every year. That's right. So they're saying they could increase the number of bats and habitats for bats in the vineyards and create artificial hollows for them to live in. Oh, artificial mm-hmm. hollows. That's right. Oh. Bat homes. So a vineyard, let, let me just work this out to a logical mm-hmm. extreme. So a vineyard mm-hmm. could say, I would like to save some money on pesticides. Yes. Maybe not $50 million per mm-hmm. vineyard, but let's mm-hmm. say I want to save a million bucks. Yeah. And in return, I have to establish a hollow, have lots of bats near me mm-hmm. or near the vineyard, mm-hmm. and the bats could... Eat the moths. Eat the moths. That's right. Sounds compelling. Mm-hmm. As with all research, it's the last bit of human relational connection that's going to determine if it succeeds or fails because at the end of the day you need vineyards to sign up and say give me more bats than you can imagine mm-hmm. right like, mm-hmm. i've never seen a bat but i want even more bats locally at my place at work mm-hmm. we talked about previously the the danger in that species jump event right where something that's infecting bats or infecting whatever animal crosses over to infecting mm-hmm. humans and that's called zoonoses very broadly so i guess there is a risk of that in, in taking this approach yeah i guess so. i guess it's something to be considered i think the appeal here is is minimizing pesticides you can make those organic claims oh right? so right. organic wine right. um, which is obviously an appealing market i can see how this this could be appealing Perfect. not all bats are dirty dirty bats of course not all bats we need to remember hashtag not all bats <laughs> not all bats you course corrected me again i was again veering down <laughs> the route of uh, defaming these honest creatures <laughs> these honest hard-working Just creatures looking to be they're just very fit, very immune competent mm-hmm. creatures. And I suppose not all species of bats would necessarily be the harbor of all these viruses. And I guess that's part of what this work that's is trying right. to uncover. part of our natural ecosystem. Something I hadn't considered, but mm. very interesting. I can see why it's made the headline here. I'm just predicting the next headline something along the lines of, you know, drunken bats drunken sleeping bats. over vineyards. <laughs> well, I guess the fact that the bats are going to be in vicinity of alcohol, and alcohol is, of course, a very common ingredient in disinfectants. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. that lowers the risk of virus spillover a little bit, but... I don't, I don't know. I wonder how alcohol in bats would affect transmission. And we're, we're going really off course here. Yeah, but... yeah. Or, or if that would compromise their immune system, drinking so much, so yeah. then maybe they wouldn't and be... And negate the effects of all the exercise that they do. Then we wouldn't have to worry about them carrying so many viruses. A win for all, perhaps. A win for all. So this is the next phase of our bat reclamation project. You're potentially a very competent aid in vineyards and the wine industry at large. Should we just make a new recurring segment? Bat watch. I like it. Let's see. There's more and more headlines around bats. I okay. suspect there might be stay tuned next week this article is from our do we mention this at the start this is one of our favorite science outlets the conversation mm-hmm. i think uh, we've yeah we've said several times several times one of our favorites it certainly is where i go looking and often the search has been optimized to lead us down this path when mm-hmm. we're searching a sufficiently technical and niche-based science term it often takes us to the conversation it's usually quite a thoughtful piece on it. i really trust it because uh, for those who are unaware conversation articles are written by experts in the field mm-hmm. so you've often got university academics researchers writing these articles and they're quite well researched and, and yes. comprehensive. Yes, and the editorial team was there at a conference I went to in Canberra mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. They were handing out tote bags. And oh, stuff. fantastic! Yeah. I, d- I didn't get a tote bag. Have you have you ever written anything for the conversation? No, uh, I think I think you have though, I right? Did. You I have did, written. Yeah. yeah. What, what was your article about? It was about a Nobel Prize for DNA damage. That was the basis of your PhD work and postdoc. That's right. Work. That's right. Yeah. Great. 
Oh, mm. great. So, you, so I didn't yeah. know I was sitting in the presence of a Methods conversation of... author. <laughs> no. I respect you a lot. Yeah, I, yeah. I know a couple of people who've written quite a few articles. This article is talking about the recent spate of headlines all around viruses. COVID, bird flu, monkeypox, a virologist on why we're seeing so many viruses emerge. And it kind of let the cat out of the bag here in that the headline is extremely obvious in many ways that news organizations are jumping on any headline mm-hmm. related to any virus. That's true. And any scientist with even a fleeting bit of collaborative work relating mm-hmm. to viruses mm-hmm. has been center stage in terms of media coverage and media attention and being sought out for comment on this. And this is really a broad umbrella, big picture article rather than zooming in on one particular virus say. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really good starting point for people reading about this for the first time. What they're really positing here is overall reason for why these viruses viruses are jumping from their natural habitat, quote unquote, over to infecting humans. We talked about the concept before of the species jump. Maybe mm-hmm. the virus is normally living within an animal and now it's moved over to infecting humans and mm-hmm. this being called zoonoses. So they're saying that as human civilization and technology has advanced, we're seeing the destruction of animal habitats. It's forcing animals into new areas in search of food sources. Mm. Different species that wouldn't usually have been in contact are now sharing the same environment. Add humans into this equation and you have the perfect recipe for a new virus to emerge. I don't consider myself a conservationist, although I do (laughs) wish that we were doing more in the environmental management and planning. How we go about that is going to be the question, but certainly with more and more development and property prices in Australia, it's not going to slow down anytime soon. It's not. Population is growing. More and more urbanization. This is going to lead to more of these spillover events over time, isn't it? The idea of climate change, which again is a better, more accurate term than global warming because Mm. climate can be either really hot or really cold. But in this specific case, the article saying that climate change making everything warmer then allows for viruses that live in those warmer climates Mm -hmm. to have more places to live, especially those proliferate more mm. especially those uh, mosquito-borne viruses mm. and if everything is warmer in a certain part of the world and warmer for longer for more months in the year yes. then their habitat will just expand mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. the people who are living in those spaces would have more months in the year that they're vulnerable to infection as well it is these animals who are living in suboptimal conditions that are leading to these viruses being in new evolutionary pressures then ultimately jumping ship any case where you have animals in abundance living in close proximity to each other that wouldn't normally be in that environment you would expect that some of these diseases may spread more rapidly or jump species and and for that kind of thing to happen and during the height of the pandemic you would see these images coming out from china where you got markets wet markets they called it with cages of animals stacked Mm -hmm. on top of each other all Mm -hmm. of them pooping and spitting all of each other and leaking all through those cages Mm -hmm. that's kind of like the the worst case scenario imagery for people mm-hmm. to visualize but mm-hmm. it could just be as simple as pigs not having enough space to spread out okay, yeah it's just, just right? some farming practices or, or like mm-hmm. non-free-range chickens being caged or mm-hmm. cooped up for mm-hmm. extended periods of time and this is a very human-centric reason to be more kind to animals because when you're not giving them the right kind of ethical environment to live and grow then this kind of stuff happens and there are spillover events so it's really in our best interest to protect that's the right animal. jack do you think we're seeing more cases of these viruses emerging or just more news reporting on this or maybe a combination of both. I would never say more news coverage on scientific topics is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I think any news is good news. Mm -hmm. Any publicity is good publicity. Mm -hmm. Scientists generally need to be in the limelight a little bit more. Previously, if we had uh, emerging disease and it hadn't really hit multiple countries, you would never see coverage of it. Swine flu, I think, which is... That's the the past major headline I really remember. And before that, probably... 
the original SARS. Was it 2001? Yeah, it, like it, was, it was the mid-2000s. Mm. There was mm-hmm. SARS and then there was swine flu. Mm-hmm. But really, we only heard news headlines when it affected multiple countries. Things like bird flu, the avian mm-hmm. flu, mm-hmm. or this version of it, the H5N1 version. Bird flu has been around for a little while. I feel like we're seeing more coverage of viruses that the general population might not necessarily know so much about. Yes. Flu is pretty much the major one. And now, of course, COVID. We're seeing coverage of things like what Marburg virus, monkeypox. Recently, bird flu has bird been flu. in the news. I think it's a good thing that people's aware Awareness of it Mm -hmm. is on a higher level, Mm -hmm. but there can be a little bit too much of a good thing in terms of how it affects your anxiety around this kind of event happening, Mm. which is my general piece of advice I like to give to students and to anyone who asks me, where do I find out the latest information about all these viruses coming in? Do I know something as a microbiologist that they don't? Mm -hmm. Like, is it something they should start worrying about ahead of time? It's a fair question. It's a fair question. Mm. And these news headlines that we've been finding cover all different places because we're interested in not just the actual facts, but how it's being portrayed, how it's being represented. That's right. So my go-to source is still the CDC website, the Center for Disease Control Mm -hmm. in the USA. Mm -hmm. And they have gotten quite a lot of bad publicity, been on the back foot in some respects and been kind of defensive or reactionary rather than proactive. Mm -hmm. But still, it's updated. And especially for the diseases that are on high alert, they're surveilling it. It's still probably the most up-to-date resource that scientists and scientifically-minded epidemiologists are actually updating. It's a fantastic resource, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if you're going to show a screenshot on here or... Yes, so the link to the Mm. CDC website on bird flu specifically, Mm -hmm. H5N1 bird flu, we will link in the show notes in the audio version. Mm -hmm. And if you're watching the video version on YouTube, you can see it on the screenshots that we will provide. So you can go and Google any disease name plus CDC or or Bing. You can use Bing, I guess. You can use any other Bing search engine. Bing might be a bit rude about it, though. Bing could be a little bit temperamental <laughs> about it, depending on their mood for that day. And then you could be taken to a current situation summary. Mm-hmm. You can see the number of cases. I mean, it is US-centric, so it's going to focus on hey, how many cases have affected humans in the US. But also you get a number of statistics. In this bird case, flu. bird flu. Bird flu, how many animals. Wild birds, poultry, and humans. Yes, how many humans had that zoonotic event, the mm-hmm. crossover infection. In a summary at the top, it's quite informative, really. Quite informative. And it also gives you some basic preventative measures. For instance, if anything's known about stopping its transmission, what's the most effective? Is it hand washing? Is it mask wearing? And some basic advice around travel. You know, looking at this is quite interesting. For example, what do you do if you find a dead bird? These are questions that mm. people might have. What do they do? And it's saying avoid contact with wild or domestic birds that appear ill or have died and call and report them. Great. I'll just stop you there because I don't want to be giving out advice from the CDC that could become outdated very shortly. Of course. And we're not saying this is advice that you should follow. We're just saying that it's quite informative for circumstances that you might encounter. And it is updated mm. at the very least weekly. Odds are if they're implementing practices against it in the US, it will bleed over into how other countries think about this mm. kind of approach. And look, they have received some bad publicity, but when you weigh up all of the other sources out there and all the anxiety and doom scrolling past mm-hmm. headlines and you have to check and verify how accurate, how validated they are. The CDC is probably the biggest, if not one of the biggest organizations that looks at these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. If you visit this website, there are much worse things you can do to alleviate or, or worsen your anxieties around the latest pandemic or virus. And it's one thing that our training has led us to be able to do, and that's to quickly look at something and determine how much of a risk we see it as or how reliable that information is. But it might not be so clear cut sometimes uh, to people without scientific training. So yes. 
it's important to take note of some of these websites that could be useful and and where check I would, your news source. And where I would stop short is to say go to the primary research literature mm. because that will not have a quick enough turnaround time. That's true. That will not be updated every 24 hours. Mm. It could take months or years for a paper to come through. And many of those research papers will be using data collected by organizations like the CDC. That's right. So I think it's great for research articles to focus on this and to read those. But if that's a bit intimidating for you, you could do far worse again than going to a website the CDC. Very true. Which brings me to the first article that we're looking at this week that is not connected immediately to a previous issue. It mm-hmm. is also about viruses. And this is something that I saw on Twitter, on the blogs, because it's got a really eye-catching headline. <laughs> Scientists have revived a zombie virus that spent 48,500 years frozen in permafrost. This is perfectly SEO'd. This means that they've picked all the right catchphrases and buzzwords that Mm -hmm. people are searching for and Mm -hmm. will be likely to grab eyeballs. You can search for terms on YouTube to see what filters and keywords people are searching for and there are companies that are entirely dedicated to search engine optimization so Google will rank your results accordingly or Bing will rank your results accordingly or AI will rank your results accordingly. (laughs) The first takeaway when I read this as a scientist is very different than my first takeaway if I was reading it as a, as a member of the general public. Okay, yeah. Right. So what, what would be your first impression from this headline? I take zombie virus to mean that it's a virus that's laying kind of dormant and then they've revived it and brought it out. How do you think other people might take it? Well, you're scientifically minded. You're thinking of it from the virus's perspective. Right? Mm-hmm. So the virus is thinking of itself <laughs> as a zombie waking up from a mm-hmm. long slumber. But most people, I guess, would read it from a person-centric perspective and mm-hmm. say, the, the virus is going to then make me a zombie oh, if, okay. if I get exposed right. to it. But that's the beauty of search engine optimization, right? However they interpret it, if it's a clickbait and it clicks, then it works. If they earn that click through whatever trickery they can get, then, hey, it's worth all the... I, I can just imagine someone typing dormant and then, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no backspace, no. backspace, zombie, yes, this is the word to use. No, no, no. Instead of digging through mud, revived a zombie. Virus. Great. <laughs> Perfect wordsmithery. But the reality is that someone was digging through frozen mud. The reason that this is a good article to focus on is because of A, the nature and the innovative purpose behind this work. Mm-hmm. It is actually very necessary. Because mm-hmm. the impression I saw on Twitter was when these scientists learn their lesson, have they not seen any science fiction movie about <laughs> terrible things that start from an initial discovery? Why are we bothering doing this work? Or the one vial of virus that's kept locked away, being broken into. And yes. Haven't you a seen... A monkey escaping. Haven't you seen mm-hmm. the Mission Impossible movie? movies when there's some virus that's been let loose on the wild but this is at the same time more interesting than that mm-hmm. but also much more mundane it's quite interesting well mm. we do because we, yeah. we're biased we're, we're, we're nerdy we're in the Let's tank for it. this kind of stuff i do want to de-escalate how how much risk people think there mm-hmm. is in science mm-hmm. overall right so that's kind of a, a subtext i want to communicate through the podcast and that science is at the same time much more interesting than you could possibly anticipate but also really much more frustrating slow <laughs> and mundane and day-to-day right? Right. these scientists aren't the going day to day can be mundane it's the scientists true. aren't mm-hmm. going to work every day full of discovery and mm. finding new things mm-hmm. every second day. It's often months and years before discovery. Absolutely. The next day. This article talks about the idea of permafrost, which is a frozen layer of soil beneath the ground. And permafrost exists potentially anywhere where you can have that much mm-hmm. frozen material. But obviously areas of the world that are perpetually more cold, like the Arctic, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. have more permafrost than, say, Australia. It will go very deep. And then the things that have been frozen in that that water mm-hmm. can be dormant, mm-hmm. cannot be thawed out for not just seasons, but for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And the risk there is that as climate change or as global warming changes the seasons, 
seasons and that permafrost is not quite so permafrosted. It's kind of being thawed as yep. we go. But if it's trapped in there from thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago, it may be reawakening to a very different ecological environment mm -hmm. around it mm -hmm. and damage things. So they're talking about things like radiation or mm -hmm. chemicals that mm -hmm. were frozen in there. And if they're melted and leaked out to the new surroundings, that could have real consequences for... Yeah, well, it's very true. It's something you might not necessarily think about immediately, is it? But... Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting to study, I think. And so straight away, the wildlife, the fish mm -hmm. in that water, mm -hmm. as, the, as the permafrost is thawing, yeah. what happens to them? Mm -hmm. And also the work these researchers are focusing on, the viruses that are stored within these permafrosts. Those latest strains represent five new families of viruses on top of the two he had revived previously. The oldest was almost 48,500 years mm -hmm. old, based on radiocarbon dating of the soil and came from a sample of earth taken from an underground lake 16 metres or 52 feet below the surface. Super, super old virus. Yeah. Again, to de-escalate how dangerous or risky or exciting this may sound to people who aren't trained in science these viruses can infect things mm -hmm. but today they've been associated with affecting amoeba which again if you don't know it's a single-celled organism that's, that's often right. found in, in aquatic ecosystems and water so they're infecting single-celled organisms with no immune system if they have the eventual evolutionary pressure to infect humans that's a different story but for the moment they are infecting a pretty narrow band of things. That's right. So I don't think uh, anyone should be alarmed immediately with this kind of research. But I mean, it also gives us an indication of the evolution of viruses over time, which is very interesting, isn't it? We've looked at several viral headlines, virus-based headlines, and there is the canonical gold standard virology podcast. It's called a TWIV. It's okay. a This Week in Virology. It's hosted by a professor based out of the US, Vincent Racaniello. I've met him in person, so he runs a great virology podcast. If you haven't already listened to it, please consider listening to it. TWIV, T-W-I-V. All we're trying to say here is to present this headline through a slightly different prism. It's not exciting for the reason you think it is. It's not exciting because these viruses are going to start a zombie apocalypse. It's interesting because, A, these viruses are super old. Mm. And genetic material in them can give us insights into all sorts of things. Absolutely. these viruses would have to be interacting with the environment around them at that time, mm -hmm. which could be very different than what's in the ecosystem. Current environment, that's right. Around them. And then if you reintroduce them to whatever our version of wildlife mm -hmm. or organisms are living in the immediate vicinity, are they still going to affect them? Or is that method of infection not effective anymore for the organisms and the microbes that are living around it? Yeah, super, super interesting. And again, if you're watching the video podcast of this, you can see permafrost cores dug out from the soil. It does look a little bit like bags of poop. <laughs> what I'm not a fan of is this dodgy looking esky. <laughs> There's a dodgy looking esky on the screenshot. It doesn't seem like it's super, super high profile work, even though they caught a lot of media buzz. Brings they not home. have chosen a better esky. <laughs> They could have doled it up for the cameras. But look, I, I like I like this unvarnished perspective of science. A shiny Coleman, perhaps. Shout out to Coleman. They have to spend the dollars on where it matters, not the look of the That's esky. That's right. All of their funding is going to the research, not the eskies. I kind of think it looks like rolls of rolls of grass. Turf. Yeah. Okay, I think it looks or like... Christmas trees. It looks a little bit like illicit Cuban cigars being smuggled And I like the labelling system too on masking tape. This is work that has to be done in this manner. It's a, We talk about science being messy, so 
sometimes and that's just the way it is, isn't it? There's not some person in charge of organizing everything in science. It's mm. not like some kind of person that we just go to and say, hey, how do we do this? Mm-hmm. Often, if you're asking that question, you're the person who has to figure out who has to do this. There is <laughs> that's no, your problem. That's your problem. And mm. if you can figure it out, it succeeds. You can claim you're an innovative leader and mm. a transformative thinker. If it's a bit of masking tape on some dirt, then maybe you can't quite make that claim. Look, I'm, I'm still kind of a part-time lab manager mm. and my label machine is kind of my claim to fame. You are not to brag, but so what you're saying is you are an innovative leader, transforming <laughs> that's, thought. That's pushing it. I'll let you write my CV next time. You're transforming the conceptualization of labeling. But they love that label maker. What's not love about we're label going, We're going off topic. This work. You can imagine involves a lot of travel. Mm-hmm. A lot of question I get from students is, if I want to become a scientist, mm-hmm. does that mean I have to be stuck in a lab for the rest of my career? That's, for some reason, a really common worry. What I like to tell students is, no one is stuck in a lab. Mm-hmm. Labs are very expensive to run. So yes. you, you kind of do have to want to be there for you to be in a lab to begin mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Like Most labs are losing money through all the insurance and through all the equipment they have to invest in just to have a person come and work. Right? Like they pay the salary, have all this insurance and exactly. regulatory framework. Mm-hmm. No one is kind of stuck or held in a lab against their own free will. To my knowledge, maybe you <laughs> might have, be having very long days, yeah. but you're not held there against your will. No, of course but, not. But also there's branches of work, certainly in the conservation of this field work where you're out in the field all the time and they're traveling to the Arctic yeah, to collect soil right. samples. This is not work that is typical and fits into a nine to five framework. No. Which brings me to our next article in our recurring segment, Whose Job Is It Anyway? Where we look at headlines around employability, the economy, and where lots of different people's jobs are either about to change or have changed already. And the article this week is all around the idea of a four-day working week. Dozens of UK companies have trialed a four-day working week last year, and on average, their revenue went up. Oh. Their revenue went up. Hmm. It doesn't say profit though, right? Because revenue yeah. just means they've made more money. But and they on could, average, so... On average. So they could have spent more money. Mm. I guess we'll read the paper to mm. really find out more about it. The key takeaways, revenue went up by 1.4% on average. Okay. And also they saw a 57% drop in resignation. I have to read that twice. Then it's a 50% <laughs> increase in resignations, people quitting. A vast drop in the number of people wanting to quit. Okay. I didn't know there were that many people wanting to quit their no. jobs at all times. But apparently everyone just wants to quit their jobs. But I guess if it was like two people on average quit and then it came to one person, then that would still be a 57% reduction. So statistics are are an interesting Mm. thing. Overall mental health and physical health of these employees uh, improved. All All good news. Mm -hmm. Four-day working. How they achieved this four-day working week was not super prescriptive. What were some of the different approaches businesses took to get that four-day working week? Yeah, that's right. They're saying, first of all, not everyone took Friday off. If you were me, it would be Monday. But anyways, everyone hates Mondays, right? There are a few different types of changes that were being trialed. The fifth day was taken off. Staggering it, so staff taking alternating days off. Decentralized, so different departments operating on different schedule annualized so a 32-hour working week calculated across the year conditional where the four-day week is tied to ongoing performance monitoring some of those sound good some of those really Mm. sound very scary to Mm -hmm. me the ability to to do four-day working weeks was contingent on some performance metric Mm. which by the way changes all the time for every every industry right right? Mm. every new enterprise bargaining if that's even the option in your sector a Mm. lot of employees don't have a collective bargaining Mm -hmm. agreement or don't have a union if it's such a good thing then why can't everyone have access to it 
staggering workload. That makes a lot of sense. It right? does make sense. Like if you're in a in a hospitality based or service based mm-hmm. customer based sector, and your portfolio work isn't needed all the time, or there's redundancy, like two mm-hmm. people can do the same job, and mm-hmm. then you share those four day working week. Yeah. Redundancy would be quite important to be able to to do this effectively. And redundancy in this case doesn't mean firing people. It means no. <laughs> having overlap in duties between two people, so mm. that. You can take a day off without the company right. taking a step back. This is very organization focused. At the institutional, mm. organizational level, if you can offer this, then that looks really good for your institution. Do you think this will work for every field? Are there some examples of fields where this might not work so well? Any field where things need to be happening all the time, it's just mm. not necessarily going to work effectively. Right. Or any field where it's one person's job and there's no one who can fulfill that role uh, on a different day maybe not working effectively either okay and Mm. all we can do is draw on our own experiences Mm. we don't have work experience in every sector but Mm. we have lots of friends and we have worked in the healthcare sector for instance and doctors and nurses are frequently on call they do have rosters yeah i believe if you're the specialist in this area and someone has that very specific injury or very specific disease you might be the only go-to person within a yeah you're gonna be called up 200 kilometer Mm. radius Mm -hmm. and then your four-day working week means nothing if there's an outbreak in that Mm -hmm. thing or there's a sudden spike in that incidence or one case is tricky what if you told a person involved in diagnosing viruses during Mm -hmm. the height of the global pandemic Mm -hmm. oh just do a four-day work week. Don't worry about it. Those overlap. See you later. <laughs> That's not going to work very well, is it? Monday's problem. If the proposal was we work four days a week, but if mm. we get paid for five, mm. that would be maybe more appealing. If there's broad support across all of these companies and mm-hmm. governments that people work four days, but get paid for five days mm-hmm. a week, great for the individual. Mm-hmm. And certainly if companies can have ways of improving their workflow, that would be a win-win for everyone. Mm-hmm. How did this study highlight ways in which companies could achieve these uh, economies of scale? So they're saying that some of the changes included making meetings shorter and less frequent, reforming email etiquette, introducing a heads down or focus period where staff worked uninterrupted, adopting new software or encouraging monotasking where workers eliminated time wasters on switching between tasks. Great. All of this sounds fantastic in theory, but there is this whole field of work that is around change management. Have you heard about this? Big organizations are just very slow to adapt to changing practices. It doesn't matter what it is. It could just be we're using a new browser for Mm -hmm. email and that could take years to adapt to. And this is pretty revolutionary, but it could be very promising if you are very, very specialized in your training that might not work so well. I'm going to go a step further and say beyond fields, there are just some people where this is not going to be a great fit for. Mm -hmm. I am one of these people that I don't think would be a great fit for the four day working week, Mm -hmm. not because I don't like getting paid extra, (laughs) but because... I'm working seven-day weeks completely mm-hmm. of my own volition. No one is forcing me to do this. So you want the six-day work week. <laughs> I don't actually need the structure of that nine-to-five, five-day working week mm-hmm. to want to go the, the extra mile. The proverbial extra mile, mm-hmm. as corny as that sounds. Yeah. I'm trying to find new edges and new competitive advantages all the time. And mm-hmm. I'm doing things like this podcast. And I'm doing all of these other ventures because I'm really interested in learning. Of course. And if I was told, hey, you have to stop working after four days a week, I would feel that as a little bit big brother, a little bit prescriptive. Yeah, a bit too invasive right? So, what you're trying to do. I guess a part of the success and, and again, that change management is mm-hmm. going to be how much autonomy you give the individuals to let them choose the best workday practices for them. That's right. And also make it very clear if you're working in a team and one team member wants to go seven days a week and the others are only there four days a week, mm. there's going to be friction. Yeah, of course. So a lot of potential issues around the, the mm. broad scale adoption. Now, I do manage people. Mm-hmm. I don't have a huge team, but I'm mm-hmm. kind of wary I'm that not 
one of these people. And by the way, these people are very common in academia. These people, I mean me, people like me who mm -hmm. are willing to work mm -hmm. seven day weeks unprompted. And very common where I work as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. So we see a lot of these people. So we are probably not the best people to speak to this That's idea true. of a lovely four day work week. I mean, research doesn't run to a set timeline. So often there'll be experiments that just need to go well, seven days or longer. If you're flying to the Arctic to collect mm -hmm. permafrost to look for zombie viruses. You're not going, hey, it's my Friday off. <laughs> I'm clocking off. I yeah. know we're deep into the permafrost now, but I need my break. <laughs> That's not, really, right. that's not really going to work. And I do completely realize and recognize a lot of people do really have their limit in terms of how they can tolerate or assimilate work mm -hmm. into their everyday life. And I can definitely see how it could increase productivity in a lot of fields. Mm. And part of being a professional is mm -hmm. managing other people's expectations mm -hmm. of you as mm -hmm. well as of themselves. So I really try and have this conversation with students I'm supervising and mentoring to be very clear. If I'm sending you an email late at night, it does not mean I want you to reply to me late at that's night. That's right. Exactly. It just means this is the only time I can find mm -hmm. to reply to your email. But, re schedule. but please reply to me at any point that you're That's available. Right. Absolutely. And I would never want to have a meeting with someone late at night or super early in the morning. But like, I mean, often sometimes you have to if you're talking to someone overseas, right? Well, so I do. That's what happens. And I, and I, and I choose to because mm -hmm. I can always say no. I can mm -hmm. always say, well, hold on. I work within these hours. So this mm -hmm. is the only time I'm I don't feel that compulsion. That's not how I'm, I'm wide and that's not really how I can work effectively. Mm -hmm. But again, everyone has a different perspective on it. And that's the thing. Being overly prescriptive, if I went and told all my employees or all the people I'm mentoring, yes. you've got to be working seven day weeks. Or if I go in and say, the only way to find ultimate inner peace is to work four day weeks. And whether that makes you competitive or not is your problem yeah. to figure out. That's a conversation that I'm very reluctant to have. Of course. And so everyone has to find their own version of balance in this space. You know, I think in my field, yes, it can be full on time-wise, mm. but the trade-off is that we have quite a lot of flexibility as well. Now understanding that, sure, you may need to take care of something after hours, but maybe you come in late to work one day or, you know, you make up for that somewhere else i am not at all micromanaged mm. in my role when mm. you get to a certain level within academia mm -hmm. you are your own worst enemy and that you're the mm -hmm. one giving yourself tasks to it's do true. and that's really great and also really anxiety ridden because you're not sure if you've given yourself too much or not enough at certain times but i think yeah often in the case where you're the sole person responsible for something you're really taking the practice to relieve your own work load down the track Right, by and, putting in the extra hours. And this mm. will sound like the world's smallest violin for people who are <laughs> entrepreneurs or small business owners. Yeah. They have to worry about all these burdens and more, mm. which again, if you go to a small business owner who is opening their own cafe or starting a new company mm -hmm. and say, hey, look, you have to do four-day work weeks or all your employees have to be four-day work mm -hmm. weeks. And they don't have the mindset to be able to adapt using all these strategies to be more efficient because when you're starting out and it's your own money on the line, you're like, go, 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 go. Mm -hmm. That's, again, going to take a period of adjustment. I think in some circumstances useful in some fields. It just won't work. And if you're a new student graduating to this kind of economy, mm -hmm. I'm hoping that you have all the leverage and mm -hmm. are able to find jobs where four-day work weeks are totally okay. Mm. I would suspect when you're first starting out, though, you would use that extra time away from work mm -hmm. to be upskilling, to mm -hmm. be even more valuable and versatile. You wouldn't necessarily say, I can just completely take that time off. When you're just starting out, right? You're not competitive enough at That's that That's right. And I, I feel like I can't really see companies saying, hey, we're going to reduce your work week to four days and pay you for five. 
I think it's more of a, we're going to reduce you to four days and pay you for four days. I would hope that they wouldn't then set unreasonable performance expectations. Of course they're going to set unreasonable performance (laughs) expectations. We're talking about a struggling economy and companies losing money. Australia, I think there's more broad support for this kind of idea. Depending where you're watching or listening from in the world, this might not carry favor. And if you're drilling into the Arctic core, keep on keeping on. Please do more than four days worth of Mm -hmm. work on a zombie virus. We appreciate you. Make sure you cross your I's and dot your T's. Mm -hmm. No, cross your T's and dot your I's. (laughs) Or maybe the other way around, depending on how drunk you're on the the video. On bat wine. On bat wine Mm -hmm. at that point in time. That brings us to crossover of the week which ties into the whole idea of a changing economy and a very reduced or more streamlined workforce in other areas. And this week's crossover is all around tech and we can't escape. There is a new version of AI. All I see on my feed, whether it be LinkedIn or mm-hmm. Facebook or Twitter, mm-hmm. was these articles like how to use AI to be more productive. Mm-hmm. Like all these articles, 10 ways, yes. 100 ways, use I AI as well. to be more mm-hmm. productive. Now, I'm guilty of writing a few of these myself. Maybe that's why I've been pitched. Uh, <laughs> that's why they come up. Yeah, so I've wrote a couple for a few overseas publications. And I give them to someone's listening. <laughs> Great. Someone's listening. You, you're tied to me whether you like it or not professionally right. at this mm-hmm. point. All that was based on GPT 3.5. And now we've moved on to GPT 4. The next version of it has been released. And everyone's kind of excited or worried, depending on where you work and how you value the different parts of your work. There's a number of different articles trying to find out exactly what the difference is between GPT 4, which, by the way, is not uh, an interface. It's not like something you could just go and use is the underlying architecture, the underlying Mm -hmm. AI models that Mm -hmm. can be given to different software like ChatGPT Plus or companies and other software that wants to pay to to license it. Because GPT-4 is something you can Mm -hmm. just download on your phone and start using. Mm. So what is the main difference that people are finding out between GPT-4 versus GPT-3? This article is saying if you give GPT-4 a question from a US bar exam, it will write an essay that demonstrates legal knowledge if you give it a medicinal molecule and ask for variations, it will seem to apply biochemical expertise. The new language models in GPT-4 are much more competent and much more natural. So they're able to pass all of these exams mm-hmm. with a higher rate. The medical licensing exam was barely scraping a pass. And no one wants a doctor that can barely pass the medical licensing exam. And now, would you know it, they've gone and made it even better at that kind of process. And the benefit, oh, I'm not sure if it's a benefit, it can pass these exams without a human being involved. But people are worried about the risks and the risk all of us go to straight away is how much is this going to resemble the dystopian future where AI takes over, take whatever sci-fi movie of your choice, Mm -hmm. uh, The Matrix. What they actually do, and this is a term I came across that was very scary when the CEO of OpenAI just kind of mentioned it very casually on on stage one of these conferences. He talked about the alignment problem. What's an alignment problem? Well, I'll I'll give you what he says about it first Mm -hmm. and see if you can guess what he says. Well, there are natural evolutions on how we think about the alignment problem but hopefully ai can get so sophisticated that it will help us address the alignment problem so what do you think that means what do you think the alignment problem is i have no idea you have no idea the alignment problem is the problem that ai will not be aligned with human interests at a certain point they will destroy us that is the (laughs) alignment problem and that AI humans right now, we're technically aligned. I'm not sure we are. Apparently right now we're aligned. Mm. But if we are misaligned, then our lives could be misaligned and they would kill us. Great. That's the alignment problem. Wonderful. And so this article talks about third-party researchers at the Alignment Research Center. This is a center. 
which sounds like an orthodontic office, to be honest, right? The yes. Alignment Research Center. Invisalign. Invisalign. The pervasive Invisalign. <laughs> the Alignment Research Center. They're not innocuous orthodontic office. Where's the Alignment Research Center? I'm not too sure. In the US. They are trying to find out if AI and different forms of AI mm-hmm. can actually do harm. So they're deliberately provoking AI, giving it hypothetical scenarios challenging it, pushing it to try and promote them and provoke them. It doesn't sound great, but I guess there are these people who need to work on the extremes of any Mm -hmm. kind of case. The conclusion, everything is a little bit more polished. Mm -hmm. And that is the next headline, the next article, which pretty much posits that GPT-4 is more evolution than revolution. It's kind of like when they release a new iPhone, isn't it? It is. Everyone's that stuff ex- is amazing, but then... Everyone's expecting a hologram mm. for the next iPhone, but they're just going to give us USB-C charging. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> if that. So if it's like, oh, can it fold? Can it like project holograms into the wall? Then it's just going to fold. And the first iPhone was amazing. I mean, it was they, amazing. Still are, they still are a technological feat. Yes. It's just people a little less excited about it. Yeah, hedonistic adaptation, where yeah, over time okay. we just adapt to mm. more and more luxurious things mm-hmm. without realizing we're mm-hmm. already sitting upon a perch of privilege. Yes. That's hedonistic adaptation and mm. we're, we're all guilty of that to some extent. And again, I'm very wary of these headlines and mm-hmm. there'll be people in the comments who will say, you fool, don't you know it's so much more groundbreaking than you could possibly imagine, you know, just using it properly. So if you actually look at what it's able to do, oh, they show okay. a breakdown on OpenAI's website about which tests mm-hmm. OpenAI's GPT-4 is performing really well at and better than its previous version. It is able to receive images as input. They call it a multimodal. So previously you would use text as the way of interacting with this AI model. Mm-hmm. But now you can send images in. Right. So you send an image and ask it to respond or mm-hmm. curate. And we also talked about previously with AI's flaw in rendering photorealistic hands. Yes. It would show a lot of six-digit fingers. Mm-hmm. And the reason was simply that the data set used to train the previous AI didn't have a lot of images of hands. People don't normally upload photos of hands to social media, to sure, whatever. It's usually yeah. photos of faces. So mm-hmm. it was doing okay in faces. Yeah, I'm not so great. Okay. But now they've just, again, it's just an iterative evolutionary thing. They're going to add more images to the data set and show hands. I feel like I'm looking at hands more often whenever I'm watching anything. I was watching a Barbie cartoon with my daughter the other day. A Barbie cartoon? And I thought, those hands look a bit weird. Hey, okay, maybe it was trained on AI. Maybe the animators <laughs> for Barbie are based on AI. And there are a lot of photorealistic AI apps that are generating absolutely amazing images. Like you ask it to render out a photo of a young Paul McCartney. And oh, then okay. you look at it and goodness, it just looks like Paul McCartney. It, look, it doesn't look like a, a render. It doesn't look like a graphic. It just looks like real people. Mm-hmm. And for those photography nerds out there, you can, like me, you can say, give me a portrait of a young woman with Rembrandt lighting shot on a 50 millimeter lens mm-hmm. with this Very much specific. background. Okay. Like you can mm-hmm. give an assignment, give mm-hmm. it a photography assignment mm-hmm. and it would just, just render it right. out for you. Right. So, so it's, it's getting Fantastic. really amazing. Mm-hmm. And incorporating that multimodal point of input is kind of one of its new calling cards. Mm-hmm. And the other part of it is that it has sought out and been integrated by other big players. This is again, not ChatGPT. This is just other software out there. There are some listed on OpenAI's website, although I think this is not the complete list. Mm-hmm. A few noteworthy mentions, Duolingo. Right, okay. Which I believe is trying to help you learn different languages. Is yep, that Duolingo? Yeah, And I think previously, if you got a translation wrong, it would just show you the correct response. Mm-hmm. But now it's more responsive and it might articulate better exactly what it is that you got wrong about the translation or Mm. give you an explanation of the different local dialects Mm -hmm. and how you approach it. They're using it in Iceland, the the Icelandic government, and thinking how they can streamline 
their process. This is what I was keeping my eye on all along, mm -hmm. not whatever is the shiniest new version of AI, but how the older institutions trying to incorporate it right, to streamline cool. their workforce. I've asked you this question on a previous episode. How do you see AI factoring into your role, into your work? And are there any ways of streamlining the things you do on a day-to-day -day basis? I'm sure there's a lot that could be streamlined, but I haven't really thought about it in detail. And I think, like we were talking about, these kind of things would be slow to integrate into my, my field. Despite the fact that we're full of innovation and research and discovery. There are certain things which are established protocols mm -hmm. and it's important to keep them the same. I can see how this kind of thing could be slow to integrate into my kind of field. Okay, mm -hmm. so I'm going to give you one concrete example of how it's going to definitely hit your role very okay. soon. All right. And this is the last article we'll talk about today. Microsoft's announcement shortly after the announcement of OpenAI's GPT-4, which they mm -hmm. own a significant portion of, Copilot, which is Clippy on steroids. This not is the Clip new... Clippy's back. Clippy's back. They're not calling it Clippy because Clippy had some bad press. They're calling it Copilot. Copilot. Which sounds good. Did it have... I don't think it had a voice, did it? It was just like... It just text-based. Like right? a speech bubble, didn't oh, it? speech bubble. So yeah. there, there was no voice that you could, you could customize. Not that I remember. Okay, it wasn't like so. Siri or, or no. Bixby or... or whatever the Google uh, assistant. Like, it looks like you're trying to format a paragraph. Yes. Mm. So this is their new version of it. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be integrated into all of the Microsoft 365 apps nice. in some way. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Excel. Mm -hmm. It could help you pre-analyze a table of data or predict mm -hmm. different graphs that mm -hmm. would best illustrate the trend that you're trying to analyze. Sure. It could help you organize your Outlook calendar mm -hmm. to say, That's useful. you've got mm -hmm. this sequence of meetings coming out next mm -hmm. week. Before of this, do you want to have a session of deep reflection? <laughs> <laughs> do you want to have some time alone? Do you have some me time to figure this out? You've got a lot of I big meetings tomorrow. I recommend coffee at this time. I recommend figuring out if you know anything about these meetings before you turn up to these meetings. Are you sure you want to keep doing this job? Yes. And with You'll ask the existential questions. And if we come back to what that clippy prompt mm -hmm. you went back to, it looks like you're formatting a letter. Mm -hmm. It would just write the letter for you. Great. In anticipation of a meeting you're about to have tomorrow about maybe resigning or something. Maybe it's gonna <laughs> you've got a resignation on the calendar for tomorrow. Let me I hope this email finds you well. Let me pre populate a resignation letter for you. It'll give you three different versions. We don't know how good it's gonna be. No. But it's coming to something that we all very routinely use across mm -hmm. the world, Microsoft three sixty five. And if we just round the circle a little bit, GBT four is not available directly. You have to use one of these other software vendors to of get access to it. Of course it's not. They lure you in with the 3.0 and then... Uh... Chat GPT, which mm. is still free, mm -hmm. is still on GPT 3.5. Mm -hmm. Chat GPT Plus, which mm -hmm. is a paid subscription, okay. $20 a month, is now using GPT 4. And we've talked about subscription models yes. previously. Yes, it's what's going to use. Mm. It's what's going to keep them mm -hmm. going and keep them advancing mm -hmm. in GPT five. But all the concerns around students cheating and using AI and robbing them of individual thought—it's going to cost them now. It's going to cost them twenty mm -hmm. bucks a month. So this is again quickly evolving. We're not mm -hmm. sure exactly where it's going to shake out, but if it's a part of Microsoft three sixty five. AI would definitely be changing your work and my work. I just hope it can format a grant application and make that text wrap around that image perfectly. This is a very specific problem I'm referring to now. Right. Well, I do a lot of PowerPoint work, so I think it's going to be integrated to PowerPoint as well. Maybe it'll draw me a custom graphic if I wanted to and be great. give a prompt. So lots of potential new users for it. We're going to keep our eye on it. But that brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Crossover Connections podcast. You can find the podcast on all of your podcast players of choice, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, as well as if you're watching this on YouTube, the full episodes as well as short clips are hosted on the YouTube channel, Biolab Collective with Jack Wayne.